It's uh, Wednesday the 21st of April about 8 o'clock and the six Premier League clubs have withdrawn from the Super League. Ed Woodward has resigned. There's been some phenomenally funny statements, hilarious statements from some of the clubs. Um, there's a piece in The Athletic, don't be fooled, Super League clubs gambled everything and they blew it. Um, and therefore I suppose some of this episode is now outdated. Um, there is some of it, however, which is still really, really relevant. Um, and some points that um, that Rupert brings up are absolutely fundamental, I suppose, to how we think about football moving forward. Um, I saw Karl Anker's tweet from, from last night um, and just, I suppose, got me thinking about, you know, could this be the catalyst for big changes in football that have been talked about for a while? Karl brought up fan ownership, um, kickoff times, funding for the women's game, proper anti-racism measures, wealth distribution, academies, um, and I suppose academies as kind of factories for players that that get that get sold, um, and legislation to stop this from from happening again. All of those things are, I guess, on the table in terms of fans and people in football being able to. To shape the, the game as they want it to be. Um, a couple of other questions, I suppose, of will this be enough for owners to leave club? Cronky out is trending on Twitter, not for the first time. <laughs> um, is this enough for Daniel Levy to, to leave Spurs, for example? I think we're, we've got to wait and see on that. Um, what are the sanctions going to be, if there are any sanctions on these clubs? Um, I hope you enjoy um, the episode. Um, Rupert, thank well, you so much for your time. time. Really, really appreciate it. They're just it. going to end up being increased revenue for them. Um, in the I'm sure League. we'll do it again at some point. Come on, you Spurs. Right. It's April the 20th at 21 minutes past five UK time. And I'm here with Casper Rupert Wood, who is an expert in global sponsorship. Global sponsorship in football. Is that fair? Yes, I'd like to think so. We can go with that. We're going to go through the latest with the Super League and then um, we're going to chat about Spurs a little bit. Um, I think it's important to just kind of say where we're at um, in terms of what the latest is at this point. So from checking Twitter about five minutes ago, one English club has said they could withdraw based on the backlash. That was reported in the Times. Um Boris Johnson has said no action is off the table to stop the Super League from going ahead. So make of that what you will. There's a captain's meeting going on today, which it seems like Jordan Henderson has been uh, the orchestrator of. Um, multiple managers are speaking out against it. Klopp did it yesterday before um, the Leeds-Liverpool game, but then Guardiola today and others have... Uh, um, the other 14 clubs, basically everyone's against it. Um, and Gareth Bale's agent has said, like, they're going to go to court to fight for players' rights to play in all these competitions. And I'm presuming that means multiple players, multiple agents are going to be involved in something like that. What's your assessment of where we are at at this point? It's been a whirlwind, um, 48 hours now, and things seem to be evolving. And I don't know about you, but my opinion on whether this is actually going to happen has changed somewhat I think when I first heard about it you know I think I like many just thought it was a bit of a ploy um, by the clubs to get more money out of UEFA um, because there are obviously UEFA Champions League reforms going on at the moment which were also announced yesterday um, but you know this is the most serious this has ever looked 
um, in terms of we've seen stories like this before. This European Super League in itself has been bubbling away for a couple of years um, in terms of uh, media attention. But, you know, we now see 12 clubs, six from the Premier League, all putting their name to it, openly backing it, um, saying that they have the funds to do it. Um, and we've obviously seen the collective outrage. And as you've just said, it's obviously spanned far more than just sport. It's into politics. It's all over the front page news. You know, people are asking us what on earth is going on. Um, you know, people who who aren't football fans traditionally, um, and they're seeing this everywhere. So yeah, th this is a whole new level. Um, in terms of where we stand now, I think, yeah, it will be interesting to see. I think um, my thought is, and, and from what, what I've seen in terms of uh, the PR of the clubs and the league in itself is they want to try and weather this and they want to try and let it blow over. And as with everything, when it comes to sport, when it comes to politics, we know that things like this do blow over. And we always know that the outrage and the immediacy is always very, very loud. It's just on this occasion, it's UEFA, it's FIFA, it's the Premier League, it's governments. You know, I'm obviously out here in Amsterdam and it's the same. You know, there are no Dutch clubs associated with this, but it's in the news here. Um, and the KMVB, the... the um, the, the, the Dutch FA have called it out as well. So even though none of their teams are, are involved in this, you know, it's really spanning mediums and spanning the world now. And yeah, I mean, we just don't know where it's going to end up. So it's quite interesting to dive into what the possibilities are, what the opportunities are. We've heard a lot of threats from UEFA, from FIFA, whether those are actually viable, I'm not so sure. Um, and ultimately, this isn't going to go away immediately. This will bubble along and it either will go ahead or it won't go ahead. And there will be some sort of ramifications um, from domestic leagues, from European leagues. So there's a lot to be figured out. And I don't think the news is going to be going away for a while. Mm. Why is it now that it's kind of taken off as this story? Like you said, it's been bubbling away for a while. What has it taken this time or what has meant that this time it's the time that it's taken hold of, of everyone, I suppose? Yeah, and, and ultimately it's it's the clubs putting their names to it and the owners putting their names to it. And the statement which came late on a Sunday evening, you know, that was tactically chosen as a time when obviously news desks aren't very heavily populated. You know, there's a strategy that goes into that. Um, and ultimately it's that that's why it's always been a threat and a means of clubs to get more money out of UEFA to get more money out of broadcast deals domestically and it's always been a suggestion that well if this doesn't happen then we could look to do this breakaway league and it's all just rumor and it's all um, it's all it's all just sort of playground talk but now you actually have a stage where not only have you got 12 clubs saying we're doing it and we're looking for three more, but they're also saying, and by the way, this is how we're going to finance it. And we have JP Morgan on board who are, are willing to do that in the interim. Um, and, you know, by the way, this is the money on offer, um, which we'll come on to, I'm sure. And it blows what the UEFA Champions League, for instance, offers these clubs completely out of the water. I do think the JP Morgan cop is more catchy than people are admitting. 
Um, I mean, JP they, Morgan do, do a lot in sport sponsorship, so I'm not putting it past them, although yeah. more grassroots traditionally. Yeah. Um, do you want to give us maybe just a bit of uh, an insight into like the work that you've done previously and how that work has led you to, I guess, think about this in the way that you're thinking about it now? Yeah, so until very recently, um, I, I worked um, at a sports marketing agency so and I specifically worked with uh, big global brands um, in their um, sports sponsorship portfolio and portfolios specifically working in football. So I worked with um, the likes of well a number of these clubs. In fact, I've worked with Chelsea, I've worked with Manchester City, I've worked with Tottenham um, with some of their um, sponsors, with some of their partners. I've also done a bit of work outside of football, um, but you know, you working in that industry, you get very much a, an, an insight into what drives attention, what drives audience, what drives negative press, what what isn't negative press. And I don't know, my, my perspective of this at the moment is from a sponsor perspective, in the short term, it's, you might think it's not a viable proposition. But ultimately, uh, the long term game is you know, the, the proposition of the ESL is you have 12 of the most watched football teams worldwide um, pitting the best players against each other week on week or every other week, whatever the format ends up being. And that to a sponsor or to a TV broadcaster is very appealing. And um, I understand and I see why, you know, even the more traditional, so to speak, broadcasters, um, Sky Sports and now BT Sport um, have called this out as something that they don't support. But let's make no bones about the fact that, you know, money talks and, and the money goes where the eyeballs are. And if you have billions of football fans around the world who support the likes of Real Madrid, Manchester United, Barcelona, Man City, and those are the teams playing every week, and by the way, this is the only place you can see them, then that's what will happen and there will be sponsors and there will be TV rights deals. What What is the timeline, do you think, or what does the process look like for, at the moment, as you say, outrage? I can't really say that I've seen anyone say this is a great idea to weather that, as you put it, to get to the point where feasibly people are watching this, paying to watch this. Like, What are some of the stages along the way there? So, well, first of all, they need to find out who these other three clubs are. I mean, they're, they're saying, right, that it, will, it won't start from um, the 21-22 season, but from the 22-23. There's obviously so much that needs to be figured out um, before that could even go ahead. I mean, that, for me, even feels ambitious. But it depends on what the response is from the domestic leagues. It depends on what the response is and what agreements can be made with UEFA. Um, and, you know, you're, you're not expecting UEFA to, to agree to anything because it's obviously a direct rival to the Champions League. But if these clubs can get um, the, the sign-off of their domestic leagues to go ahead and form it, um, then the ball can start rolling pretty quickly. And if that then happens and UEFA say, well, you're expelled from all UEFA competition immediately, you know, and realistically, you know, we've, we've seen rumours that they might do that for the existing Champions League and Europa League clubs. I don't think that will happen, but it's not impossible that they say, 
okay, well, as long as you're continuing these ESL talks, none of you are competing in the 21-22 UEFA Champions League or Europa League. Um, I think that's very feasible. And if that starts to happen, then things start to snowball. And if they're aiming for to start it, not this coming season, but the next, then that probably is viable. Um, and, you know, you bring players into it. And I know that you've mentioned Jonathan Barnett. Um, it's what that looks like from a player perspective. Um, they still need to figure out the way that the competition looks. I know FIFA, FIFA haven't entirely um, scolded the idea. They said that they wouldn't allow a World Cup to go ahead um, with players from a closed competition, although technically the ESL isn't a closed competition. I know there's debate around that, but you know they will find some legal ramblings to say that that's not the case. And also banning the best players in the world from a World Cup doesn't do anything for the players. It doesn't do anything for European Super League teams. It doesn't do anything for FIFA. Because much like the ESL is going to rely on sponsorship and TV rights um, to, to fund it, and that relies on the best players in the world, the same goes for the World Cup. If you take those players out of a World Cup, FIFA have that issue. So I don't see that ever happening with um with the players and i guess with this idea of like agents being able to influence um like legal negotiations where do like the brands that sponsor these players fit into this like i don't know whoever's director of football sponsorship for nike for example like what are their what are their meetings looking like like what is the mood in a brand like that at the moment i think they um, well, unless I've, I've missed anything, the likes of Nike, the likes of Adidas have all stayed very quiet so far. And I think they will do because at the moment they don't, they don't need to get involved. And at the end of the day, um, as reductionists and, and capitalists as it sounds, they'll go where the eyeballs are. So it comes down to the same discussion. And, you know, the likes of a Nike of an Adidas probably can't stand up and say, hang on, something like the ESL really goes against the merits of competition because it's a competition set up in an American style, in, a, in an NFL style, in an NBA style, et cetera, et cetera, to sporting organizations which have contracts with Nike and Adidas or have done in the past five or 10 years. So I don't think they would have a, a leg to stand on in terms of that argument. Um, and realistically, again, they're sponsoring the best players in the world and they're sponsoring them to be to have their products um, broadcast across the world. And so it, it, it will come down to the same argument. If the ESL goes ahead and you have Real Madrid one week, Real Madrid Man U one week, Liverpool Barcelona one week, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and you have the likes of, um, well, I was going to say Neymar and Mbappe, but currently <laughs> they're, they're not signed up to, to take part, but... With my Tottenham hat on, the likes of Harry Kane, who's obviously one of the most marketable marketable players in the UK, and he's lining up in it, then you know he he is a Nike ambassador. That's where they want to be. Um, so ultimately, it's it's the same answer. They'll go where the fans are, where the audience are. So there's no ramifications in terms of sponsorship for like Marcus Rashford coming out and being like football is for the fans, because at the moment, there's no reason for Nike to say anything towards that, right? No, no. 
and yeah, I saw his his tweet earlier, um, and yeah, we we I think we were all expecting and, and waiting for for Marcus Rashford to get involved in it. You know, he's kind of become that sort of linchpin for the voice of reason in the UK over the past year, and it's been so refreshing. Um, in terms of that, from a from a sponsorship perspective and from an ambassador perspective, you know, all these brands, um, the Nikes, the Adidases, but it goes you know, broader than that, you know, players of Marcus Rashford's ilk will have a number of partners, of partners, a number of brands that they're ambassadors for. And yes, they will be held against a contract and there's a certain means um, and expectations in terms of how they should behave and how they should communicate with fans. Um, but something like that wouldn't fall into it. Um, I, I wouldn't think at all. Um, if there was... Um, if Nike were, were to take up a position, then they might go out to their ambassadors and say, look, this is our position. We want you to support this or we don't want you to speak out about this specifically. That might be different. But like I said, I think that they're going to stay clear of this. There's no good publicity in this at the moment, um, obviously. There's, um, but, but equally, Nike and Adidas and, and the likes, those big partners in football, don't lose anything at the moment by staying quiet. Mm. Has there ever been an idea more badly received in football? Ha. Huh. Um, I mean, I would say no in terms of our lifetimes, obviously stretching back to the heady 90s. But, um, you know, I, th I think you need to remember that, you know, stuff, stuff like this has happened before. And yes, at the moment, it feels very dramatic. There is a lot of outrage. And by the way, as I'm saying all of this, I don't agree with this and I don't want this to go ahead, but I'm looking at it from a, is this realistic perspective? Can this happen perspective? What's the motive? What's the motivation perspective as a football fan, as a Tottenham fan, as a Tottenham season ticket holder for God knows how long it's been about 15, 20 years, but it feels about a hundred um, such as being a Tottenham fan. Um, I don't want this to happen, but I do think that it realistically can happen. But, you know, you know I, th I thought it was a really interesting um, tweet, which was shared by Michael Cox yesterday, actually. And it was a quote from Sir Alex Ferguson, which was, a piece of nonsense has done the reputation of clubs no good and has, in fact, alienated a great many supporters. It sells them right down the river and you can't disregard your fans and your customers, which obviously feels really apt and a quote in response to the European Super League. And that was Sir Alex Ferguson talking about the original clubs who came together to form the breakaway Premier League from the Football League um, at the start of the 90s. So this has happened before. There has been outrage like this before. And ultimately, you know, whilst we see um, that collective outrage from the likes of, you know, Sky Sports, the Premier League, they've created this. What we're seeing now is a product of what has happened in football for the past 25 years. And it's, you know, it's, it's too late to get on the moral high ground and throw your toys out the pram when you realise, hang on, you know, all that money that's coming into our coffers is about to go into someone else's, is about to go into a challenger. And that's kind of where this comes from. So, you know, ultimately, no, I don't remember something being as badly received. But again, you know, we've seen this, you, you'll remember the 39th game initiative, which was Richard Scudamore's baby when he was CEO of the Premier League. And the idea that you play this, each team would play one more game in the US or in the Far East. 
and that was really badly received. Um, this obviously didn't re reach this stage, but we've seen it. Ultimately, is that right? For me, it's not. I mean, the 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 and and Patrick Bamford again called it out in his his interview yesterday after the Leeds versus Liverpool game. He goes, you know, imagine if we gave all this attention to to the real issues that there are in football. Um, and you know, for for me. And this is a, a subject, actually, which I, I wrote my university dissertation on, um, which was on the social and economic impacts of hosting the FIFA World Cup. But, you know, the, the decisions to award the 2018 World Cup to Russia and 2022 to Qatar, which were effectively bought um, as um, a means to promote each of those states, is far more outrageous and should have been far worse received. And the news that has gone alongside it um, in the lead up to, to Russia, which is obviously back in 2018, and the lead up to Qatar, which is next year, we see these dips of, of attention and of media attention and outrage in regard to these. But these are two competitions that, um, you know, and to, to states which are not free, are not open, do not encourage football supporters of all backgrounds, of all genders, you know, they're, they're particularly, you know, from an LGBTQ perspective, community perspective, they um, are, are not free and open, and they should, these should not be countries which should host the World Cup. We've obviously seen 6,000 migrant workers now dead in the lead up to Qatar 2022. So for me, that is the most outrageous uh, decision or um, piece of news that has come out of football in our lifetime and it's just such a shame that um, we see like I said dips of, of media attention in regard to that um, but we don't really see sponsors backing away from it we don't see tv broadcasters backing away from it um, and again as, as that comes down to one of my favorite podcasts the football ramble Kate Mason yesterday said football is a marketing exercise and it is. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not a sport. It's not a game. It's, it's the entertainment industry, much like Hollywood is. That's what it is now. And it has been for a number of years. And to suddenly say that these clubs are being taken away from the fans that built them, that happened a long time ago. And that happened gradually. Um, and that will continue to happen. And by the way, that doesn't mean that if the ESL goes ahead, suddenly you'll be able to get a Tottenham or Arsenal season ticket tomorrow. There will still be a, season, a waiting list of 40 or 50,000 people and they will still have sold out stadiums every week. And that's just mm. where we are now in terms of the landscape. What are, some, what are the potential amounts of money that this generates for these clubs? Like you said, money talks and, you know, potentially this money dwarfs what they're getting in the Champions League. Like, do you have any idea of what these figures are? So, in the short term, um, the amount of money is vast. Um, as I said, it's being funded um, in the interim by JP Morgan. They're backing it. Um, I can't remember how. I think it's for 10 or 20 years they've said that they'll underwrite it for, which is which is crazy. But um, sorry, co correct me if I'm wrong or that, but I think I read that. And um, it, it's important to stress. So basically, they have a, a, a 3.5 billion euro pot, so about three million pounds, um, and that's divided up again up to the 15 founding members, as there will be. But it's important to say that's not just a grant; it's a loan. But 
they'll that will basically be repaid by sponsorship and, and media revenues once those are secured. Um, I mean, in the long term, the answer is how long is a piece of string? Ultimately, this breakaway comes from the fact that these big clubs who generate the audience and generate the revenue for the UEFA Champions League want a bigger piece of the pie. And I think in the immediacy, for instance, for the first season, it's been estimated that the winner of the European Super League would earn 400 million euros. That compares to Bayern earning 120 million euros for winning the 2020 UEFA Champions League. And they're just predicting that even through participation, you'll earn three times as much as you do from the UEFA Champions League year on year. So ultimately, once you bring sponsors into that and broadcast deals, and we know how broadcast deals grow, we've seen it in the UK. You know, it's always, it was in the news when it was the first ever billion pound um, TV rights deal those snowball and those spiral and that will happen here as well so whilst year one it's estimated that the winner will earn 400 million wouldn't be surprised if that was a billion within five to ten years of the competition why is it so much more marketable and profitable than the champions league i suppose it ultimately comes down to pitting the best of the best if you're you know and i come back to it for me as a supporter um this doesn't appeal to me um, you know, my, my, you know, favourite moments from being a Spurs fan were, you know, being used to watching them disappoint week on week in the Premier League. And then all of a sudden, you know, fast forward to 2010, 2011, and we were playing in the Champions League and we were playing against European champions into Milan in our run to the Champions League final. You know, I went to the games in, in Barcelona and, and in Ajax um, in Amsterdam, which, were obvious, which was obviously one of the greatest nights in our in our history and the reason that those nights are so special is because they're so infrequent if you start to introduce you know Spurs playing Barcelona one week Real Madrid the next week Inter Milan week after that Juventus the week after that suddenly you 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 lose this magic and you lose this romance that's my perspective and opinion as a fan but if you take the global audiences the audience base in the US the audience base in in Asia which realistically is where the eyeballs are coming from and which generate the TV deals, are they put off by that? Are this, and are the younger generation, the FIFA generation, um, you know, put off by the fact that they're going to be able to see the best players play against the best players week on week? And probably the answer is no, they won't be put off by that. That's, that's to be seen too. It might be that there's an element of fatigue. But I think ultimately these clubs are banking on the fact that if you have the best teams and the best players pitted against each other week on week, then that's why it's so much more appealing than the Champions League. Because the Champions League, like, like the UEFA League, has almost become a bit too bloated in that you still have, you have these games, you know, you, you get your eight, eight groups in the group stage and you get two teams who you more often than not can predict who are going to go through. So you've got a whole host of games being played that to many and to global audiences are in effect dead rubbers or too easy to call. You might end up with two or three groups where that's not the case, but by and large, you know the teams that you're going to get in the last 16 every year. You'll always get a bit of a shock, but that's just how it is. So this product, which pits um, the very best of the best and, and you know ultimately you could see the 
four or five best players in each position playing every week against each other. That's what that's the appeal here. Whether, the, like I said, whether there will be fatigue that come off the, comes off the back of that is to be seen too. But the club seem to be banking on the fact that that won't be a, that won't be the case here. I guess what we've still got to wait for is whether players are literally going to be banned from other competitions, and if like who's going to be the first player that comes out and says. I don't care about playing in the Premier League. I don't play, care about playing for England. All I care about is playing for my team in the Super League. Um, yeah. Because I just don't see, I just can't see that happening. And at some point, players are going to have to speak about this. And I guess it brings me on to the next point, which is like, the people who have made these decisions are nowhere near TV cameras, right? Like, these owners are nowhere to be seen, nowhere to be heard from. It's managers getting chucked out in front of press um who are having to who are having to field these these questions how can people who don't like this prospect individualize the blame and negative feelings they have towards owners and chairmen's no i thought i think it's tricky and yeah completely i mean i haven't envied um Klopp and Pep getting these questions in their press conferences and seemingly they had no idea that this was going to happen um, until we all knew. They, you know, the players found out the same way we did. The manager found out the same way that we did, which is completely unique in football as well. You know, that very rarely happens, although it seems to have happened with the Jose Mourinho sacking as well. But it seems as though Daniel Levy had a pretty, pretty busy 24-hour period and didn't have the chance to tell the players about anything. But... It's tough. I mean, look, I, I, I really see it from, a, from an owner's perspective, especially, and again, speaking with my Tottenham hat on, if, you're, if you run Tottenham Hotspur and you know that realistically, from a sporting perspective, you're on the fringes of, of something like a European Super League and you have the opportunity to join it and you know the money that's going to be associated with that, then I completely see why you jump on board. And Spurs are in about five, six hundred million pounds in debt because of the stadium. You know, you risk cutting yourselves off financially. Um, and if the European Super League then goes ahead and you're stuck in the Champions League with reduced revenues or the um, and, and reduced funds in the Premier League, then I completely see that. It's going to be a really long way back. We've obviously seen the, re- the reaction of, of fans. I mean, I think uh, YouGov today said about 75% of fans wouldn't even bother watching it. Again, I think that's very, uh, that comes from the moral outrage and, and that would probably um, change somewhat. In terms of you know, what happens with the owners here. I mean, all these owners have dealt with supporter outrage before. Cronker, Arsenal deals with it on a daily basis. Levy probably deals with it on a daily basis. And that's something I'm sure we'll come on to later, which I don't necessarily always agree with, but I also understand the, the standpoint of a number of the fans. The Glazers obviously faced it for a number of years when they came in and that has died down somewhat. Um, I think Liverpool is the interesting one because um, the the job that John Dun- John W Henry has done there and Fenway Sports Group has been absolutely incredible. Um, and they took over from from Tom Hicks and George Gillette 
who were a complete disaster and two crooks basically in this you know fsg came in and you know i don't think the the fan base were were necessarily overwhelmingly optimistic because they'd been stung before um but the structures that have obviously been put in place at liverpool and the the European football beast that they have become again um, and the job that Jurgen Klopp has done has been amazing and and the the way that the the regard that the fan base before this all happened held FSG for was in such high regard um, so I think that's a really interesting one because we obviously saw before the Leeds game yesterday a reaction of a number of Liverpool fans um, and you know they obviously have their slogan you'll never walk alone and this is you know goes against that and effectively leaves clubs and communities and local fans in the lurch in a way um but you know these are the rich of the rich and they're not averse to criticism they're used to it and i think that's why basically they'll be battening down the hatches for a while and just waiting for it to blow over and seeing what comes off the back of it i don't know if you saw uh, monday night football but jamie carragher and gary neville were you know, before the game, did like 45 minutes on this. Um, I wonder what you make of the idea that fans can stop this from happening. How? I saw Gary Neville's initial reaction, which whilst I agree with um, agree with the message and, and the passion with which he's coming at the subject from, I think there are a couple of things which I didn't necessarily agree with, like, you know, kicking owners out of the country and not allowing foreign ownership because I don't under, I didn't really understand that point um, and, and what that had to do with anything. You have a number of foreign owners in the Premier League who haven't joined up with this European Super League idea and are, are averse to it. Maybe that's because they didn't get invited, but equally maybe that's because they, they don't want to be a part of it. So I think that was um, a bit of a miscommunication, I'm sure. But yeah, it's it's what I came back to earlier. If if yeah, and and I really hate this phrase, and I've seen it popped up. It's been popping up everywhere for the last two two days. But um, the case of legacy fans, you know, traditional fans who, uh, like you and I, have supported Tottenham from birth, and we we go to games, um, and we're we we grew up locally. We're part of that community, um, and you know now this. You know, if, if, if we take the phrase legacy fans, in effect, do they matter to the owners? Um, do they, does the, the running of the club depend on them? Um, and ultimately, now, the answer is no. It's like I said, uh, if they stop going, do you still have 45,000, 42,000 season ticket holders at Spurs? Do you still have a sold-out stadium every week? The answer is yes, because of the fact that it's an entertainment basis, because of the fact that you have fans worldwide, because it's a it's an enticing proposition to be able to go and watch the best players um, and the best teams in, in a European Super League. And the whole match day experience, you know, you very much see it when when you very much saw it when they opened the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. A lot of the marketing is driven towards, hey, come and watch the 12 o'clock kickoff at our bar in the stadium, have some drink, have some food. Oh, we're keeping the stadium open for three hours after to watch the later game. You know, it's it's not they're trying to reshape it into this American experience, which isn't stay in the pub until five to three and then make a mad dash to your seat and get in there 10 minutes after kickoff 
get down to have a beer at half time and then miss another 10 minutes. So leave early to beat the traffic. They're trying to reshape that and reframe that. And, you know, ultimately, no, I, d- I don't think the fans can do much. You know, more, their, their outrage will go so far and maybe it will help. And maybe, as you said, it already sounds like one club is, is reconsidering based on the attention um, and the, the outrage from fans. But, you know, the we know how the likes of the Glazers are and the Cronkers are and Levy is and... Um, you know, the same will go for Florentino Perez. And um, it's the, the, the short answer and the, the answer which hurts, and I am a legacy fan, so to speak, is that the club and Tottenham Hotspur, for example, and its future doesn't, isn't dependent on us being part of it. How much has the pandemic led to that? Like fans, are fans less valuable, in inverted commas, to these clubs as a result of coronavirus and fans not being allowed in stadiums? And to what extent does that mean that this is like kind of the perfect timing for this to happen? This is like the perfect storm. Well, I I think the announcement and um, this all coming at a time like this is... There's, there's two parts of it when it comes to COVID. Ultimately, all those clubs have suffered a massive dip in revenues and they need to hit their... Uh, they need to make sure they're paying off those debts, which is a large part of, of why it's come out now. And is there a tactical element of that, of, hang on, we don't have any fans in the stadium so that we know that we can do this without, you know, a visible backlash? Then, yes, that probably does come into the, the PR aspect of it, I would imagine. But yeah, I mean, my my inkling is to 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 combat the loss in revenues um, that the last twelve months plus have um, had on those football clubs is 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 also a huge reason as to why they're kicking on with this um, and and getting it live now. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask a question about um, like the way I guess that. Uh, the women's European Super League was kind of dangled. There was like no yeah. detail really about yeah. just like, oh, in, in due course, we'll announce it. Yeah. Um, what is the likelihood, this is a question I got from Chelsea Sparks on Twitter, what is the likelihood of these big time sponsors simultaneously pouring money into the rumoured women's European Super League? Um, and how could that happen if it were to happen? Yeah, and uh, to your point, um... I think that was really disappointing, um, the fact that, yes, there was effectively one sentence nodding to the fact that, oh, by the way, we will also create a women's competition at some point. We're just going to do this bit first. It was disappointing because, um, you know, there's an opportunity there to show um, their support for the women's game, to start these two competitions alongside each other, um, to state equal prize money, um, for the winners, so on and so forth, that would have been a very easy win as well from a marketing perspective. It stinks to me of the fact that this was rushed. Um, the the release was probably rushed and not entirely planned. Um, and that was probably in response to, to those UEFA reforms and um, the, the general meeting that was going on. Um, I think it was both last Friday and then going into the decision process on the Monday. Um 
from the perspective of how it looks in terms of a women's ES women's ESL. Um, I mean, it's again, it's to be seen, but you could, for instance, sell the rights package, the TV rights package as a joint venture. You can sell the, sell the sponsorship package as a joint venture. Um, there's a really interesting model at the moment. Um, if you look at cricket um, with the 100, um, which again was a break, not a breakaway competition, so to speak, but a new format of cricket, which was meant to start last summer and then because of COVID is now starting this summer. And the, it's all modelled on franchise teams in the UK and they started a men's and women's competition alongside each other, equal prize money, um, a huge, um, a big move from the ECB was the fact that the whole competition actually kicks off with um, one of the women's games, which was seen as a, um, a fantastic sort of, um, a fantastic way to kick off the tournament, but showing their real commitment to these being treated equally. So there's a really interesting angle there, which I think the ESL have completely ignored. And like, and like we said, added it in as a bit of a side note. Um, but of course, if it, if it is there and it is going to be promoted alongside it, then there is opportunity for sponsors. And there would be, uh, you know, that could be increasingly enticing because it will be the same. We, we know about growing audiences in the women's game and we know how they've just had a record TV deal for the WSL and it will be the same concept if you're able to get the best of the best um, in terms of players um, into the women's ESL then there's no reason why you wouldn't see record deals there I suppose the difference is is that you have some a team like Lyon um, and a team like Wolfsburg who are obviously two of the best um, women's sides out there and now you have clubs who are deciding we're going to be in the ESL and so it'd be interesting then to see how, um, if that were to go ahead, um, the women's transfer market, and if you then were to see an influx of players um, to those teams who are going to play in the ESL from the likes of Lyon and, and Wolfsburg and those teams that, that tend to be at the top of the game um, in Europe. There. Yeah, I suppose in the Women's Champions League, anyway, PSG have just knocked out Lyon, PSG mm. as a club made like a, you know, we're not going to be part of this. Um, so yeah, there's definitely definitely things things to consider. Um, I suppose just to to wrap up on um, on the Super League, um, if you had to say like out of ten likelihoods, ten like certainty, one dead in the water, what is the possibility that we're <laughs> we're watching or that there are Super League games available to watch? in the next, I don't know, two, two seasons? Um, if you asked me yesterday from a scale of one being not likely to 10 being very likely, I probably would have been at about one or two. And today I'm at about a five or a six. <laughs> so I do think it's possible and I do think it's viable. Um, I probably still don't think it will happen and I think there will probably be some sanctions in the short term and then some restructuring of UEFA club competitions to ensure that those clubs who want it get more of the revenue streams so we've just got to watch this space it's too tough to call um, but it's very very possible and the longer it drags on the more likely it will be I think it will be a if it's going to die it's going to die really quickly 
um, and if they can just sail through this rocky patch, um, then yeah, it could very realistically happen. Okay. Um, so yesterday I did a bit of a clear out, took a load of stuff to charity shops, felt really good. I was walking down Holloway Road with these two massive Ikea bags, popped into the barbers to have my first haircut, walking home, look at my phone and Mourinho's been sacked. And I just burst out laughing. I thought I was like, this is a ridiculous, this is, it was barely even half past 10, I think. And this ridiculous, this ridiculous morning, um, of football. Um, yeah. I guess two two questions to start with with Spurs. What was your initial reaction when you found out that Mourinho was sacked, and why do you think he was sacked? Um, my initial reaction was thank God, good riddance, <laughs> um, which I think um, I had been wanting that day since the day he arrived in place of my beloved Mauricio. Um, so I was very relieved. I think from my perspective, I mean, I, I thought it was crazy. I think the timing, I, I wouldn't have expected that in terms of the timing because I thought they would have given them the cup final. You know, we've beaten Man City twice um, with him under against Pep Guardiola. So I was ex very much expecting him to be the manager for the cup final. I'm very relieved that he's not. I would rather lose a cup final under Ryan Mason than win one with Jose Mourinho as a Spurs fan. And why do I think he was sacked? Um, I think it comes down to he did his usual um, archetypal Mourinho behavioural complex, which um, reached blaming the players a lot earlier than it usually does. It usually happens in a third season. And, you know, it would be Spurs that Mourinho is unable to go to and win a trophy. And it would be Spurs that uh, Mourinho suddenly, you know, fast forwards his process of imploding by about 18 months. So um, I think it comes down to that. And I, I thought that he would be sacked at the end of the season. And I guess for whatever reason, Levy just thought, let's get rid of it now. But I mean, you know, we both know the performances have been anywhere near good enough for a long, long time. Um, and quite frankly, the drop-off has been remarkable because it's a team that was top of the league in December no. and that people were actually talking about winning a title. And if you think back to those early games, not including the first game against Everton, um, you know, the game against United obviously stands out. Um 85 minutes of the game against West Ham at home, where we obviously have been completely imploded as well. You know, the, the performances were fantastic and there was a game plan and it worked. And then that suddenly dropped off from December and he started blaming the players and it's never his fault. And, you know, for me, a manager never blames his players. He blames them in, in the dressing room, for sure. You don't hang them out to dry. But we know what Mourinho is about. He's always done that. So that was never going to be the case that he'd come to Spurs and not do that. It was just a matter of when. Yeah, I think I'm with you. Um, I also, it, like straight away, my head went to, does this mean it's more likely that Kane leaves this summer? Does it mean it's more likely that Son leaves this summer? Um, and I don't think I know the answer to that. I wonder what your your take is on how much of an influence he had 
on those two mm. players and whether him leaving even has an effect at all on, on their futures at Spurs. Mm. Well, I think that if he hadn't left now, he would have left at the end of the season. So um, I don't think that will necessarily have an impact. I think if I were Harry Kane, as much as it pains me to say as a Spurs fan, I would leave. I think if Kane doesn't leave Spurs this summer, Kane won't leave Spurs. I think he either does it now or he does it never. The good news is that I don't think Levy would ever sell him and Son in the same window. So we should have at least one of them next year. I think obviously from the Berbatov and, and Keane um, incident when they both left and we were a complete disaster after that and they were our two best players, so to speak. Um, Levy's really been stung by that and he he wouldn't do that again. <sighs> Touch wood, as always. Maybe, maybe, he probably will now, not look stupid. <laughs> um, but I, I think there's a very good chance Kane will leave, especially if um, City are priced out of, of Holland. That being said, you know, Levy will name his price and he won't budge from it. I don't see Kane leaving for anything less than 120 million. So it's whether teams can or will pay it. Realistically, Manchester United will be able to. Do I think Kane should go to Manchester United? No. I think that he should go and play for a top manager, someone like Pep. And I think ultimately that's the only destination where he can go, really, unless it's possibly Liverpool. But I don't think Liverpool can afford him. Um, because I think he wants to break all those Premier League records. So I don't think he'll go to Real Madrid, but obviously don't rule it out. But I think if he can stay here, he will. And yes, I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he left this summer. It's, it seems, it, maybe it won't happen because we don't know how serious this injury is, but there's a chance that he can finish this season as top scorer and most yeah. assists, yeah. which is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. it's unbelievable to think that in a team that isn't very good, he yeah. has a chance of, of doing that. And the prospect of him playing for Guardiola is absolutely terrifying. Like him hitting his peak oh, yeah. with unbelievable players around him in every single area of the pitch. You can base the whole team around his skills. You can plug him into everything that's going on already. I mean, I just, Mm. part of me just, I just would love to see what that looks like. But he, exactly, from a a football fan perspective, taking a Tottenham hat off it, I would absolutely love to see it. And I think he deserves it. And I think he's earned it. I have a real issue with the the concept that, you know, when players leave, um, you know, in particular, when players leave Tottenham to win trophies, I have a big issue with that when you have a good team because ultimately it's the players and the setup who didn't win the trophy. It's not the club. It's nothing to do with the fact that they're wearing a Tottenham badge. It's to do with those men on the pitch and um, the management and the structures around it. Um, you know, and I take someone like Christian Eriksen as, as an example there. He is an incredibly talented footballer and is one of the best players to have ever played for Spurs in my lifetime. But he is part of that collective failure. So I don't buy into when he leaves and he says, I want to win trophies, because for me, he is one of the reasons we haven't won a trophy. But with Kane, I don't have that because Kane is someone that you can rely on to to turn up every week. And even when he's not at his best, you can see that he's trying to be. So, you know, for me, he's one of those players who deserves to play with the best players. 
And the fact that we haven't won a trophy for me isn't really much to do with Harry Kane. It's kind of the opposite of what I was just saying. And it's the fact that he doesn't quite have that level of player around him because he is that elite level. He is that he is able to go and play for any team in the world, whereas someone like Christian Eriksen is probably just a tiny little bit below that. Mm. And is it- so, yeah, from a from a fan's perspective and from a, a Harry Kane appreciation perspective, I really want that for him. It's in, I don't know. I feel like maybe the, it's obviously a different position, but the compare like Carl Walker, right, can just go to Man City mm. straight mm. away be as good as he was for Spurs, if not better, a new manager who like can rely on the fact that there's better players around him, can get the most out of him, and straight away he can he can go and do that. Um, I am just I, I to think what to this Spurs team without Kane is mm, bleak. is what I mean even if these six clubs break off and it's fourteen. Like nowhere, nowhere near Leicester. This team is nowhere near Leicester. Mm-hmm. Nowhere near West Ham. <laughs> like it's not a good team at all. And it then just becomes, I don't know. You get someone you can't replace Kane. He's like the England captain in his mm-hmm. prime, going to mm-hmm. lead the league in scoring, maybe the league in assists as well. But you get someone who tr- can try and do some of that stuff, and then you have to just get the most out of Ndombele, Hope that Son stays, and we don't do what we did with with Berbatov and Keane, as you said. I um, think, and also so, something which I realised, I forgot to cover off in our ESL chat, which you've just mentioned. If it's a league which goes ahead with, with 14 teams, you said, mm. and I don't I don't see a situation where ESL goes ahead and those teams aren't in domestic leagues. Yeah, Players won't want that, and all they want is this to be their, their the new version of the Champions League. And I don't think that that will happen, but sorry, that's um, by the by. No, no, it's agree a good point. Agree with you. Yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, it's a good point. I think like domestic football is, and I don't know, like, even even saying it feels like maybe I'm being one of these legacy fans of people. They couldn't possibly, well, like they could, yeah, they've done you're right. They probably before. could, yeah. Um, but they yeah. don't want that, and they made that clear in their in their statement. They want to play domestic football, so I imagine yeah. that there will be both. Yeah, um, Ryan Mason, interim yeah. manager, been with the under twenty threes. Uh, what's your what What are your feelings towards him? I'll tell you mine, and it's probably because we've got City at the weekend. We played City, and we were wearing the black with yellow trim. Yeah. AIA Under Armour kit and he scored yeah. very early away at Man City that's my that's my when I think of Ryan Mason that's what I think of maybe and you know then didn't we Benton. lose 6-1 or something yeah we got hammered, <laughs> we got hammered. Uh, I love Ryan Mason he is one of the good guys in football and he always has been and I remember being at White Hart Lane when he came on and scored on his debut in the League Cup against Nottingham Forest and he scored an absolute screamer um, and from then on kind of didn't look back and, and got in the team. Um, and I always thought he was, he was an excellent player and he kind of reached that. He was almost like that, our, our Harry Winks of old in that he was always a very, you know, a Tottenham boy and a good squad player and you could really appreciate him at times. And then at others, you were just a bit like, I think you're too out of your depth in this team or, or playing um, against this lot. 
so maybe we should save you for for the lesser games um so to speak but he's an amazing bloke and the things that he's gone through obviously in his career and having to retire at 26 and then Pochettino brought him back in at Spurs um, as a coach and he's been doing really well there I mean he wouldn't be made um is he head coach of the under 23s or under 18s 23s I think 23s I mean you don't get that job if you're if 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 you're not a good coach at, at a team with a setup like Spurs because we know how those are structured from from top down so he's clearly talented and, you know, like I said, I would rather lose a cup final under him than, than win one under Mourinho um, and never hear the end of it. And, I mean, Mason, Ledley and now Michel Vorm all on the bench at Wembley, an average age of about 34 between the three of them, leading our team out and then winning a trophy. Um, that is a fairy tale that I'm here for. <laughs> what? You, Fast fast forward five days and we've lost eight nil to Man City or something. <laughs> what are what are the chances of us getting a result against City at Wembley on Sunday? Um, I would give us odds of about seven or eight to one. Right. Okay. And I I. I and a lot depends on Kane, to be honest, because obviously yeah. De Bruyne is going to be out. If Kane's fit and De Bruyne's out, then you never know. Um, and who knows, you know, let's, I was not a big fan of tactics, Tim. In fact, I probably disliked him more than I disliked Jose Mourinho, but he did have a, an impact as soon as he came in and we suddenly played this really free-flowing, attractive football and scored loads of goals and it was all really exciting for a couple of weeks and if Mason has that sort of impact, then maybe we'll only lose 5-3. <laughs> uh, what do you think the team will be? Let's say Kane's fit. We'll cross all our fingers and toes and no. maybe he'll then get injured and be out for the, the Euros, but that doesn't matter because we're Spurs fans. What's the, what's the starting eleven? Hugo? Hugo. Um, Aurier? Yeah, probably. I mean, I would start Aurier ahead of Doherty, and I think Doherty's just come back to training. I mean, it's got to be Toby at the back with, I mean, for me, it'd be with Roden. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to see if he did. He would do that. Um, and then obviously Reggie at left back, because he's yeah. a wonderful footballer. Um, are we going four at the back, do you reckon? Or do you think Mason's going to go three centre-backs? Listen, he could, do, he could do anything. Let's say it's those four. Knows. Let's say it's those four, probably. Okay, let's go those four. Then obviously Hoiberg and Dombele, centre mid. I think Ryan Mason, I think Ryan Mason's going I can't I literally just said, I can't believe Ryan Mason. And then I thought I'd made a mistake because I was like, <laughs> I can't be speaking about the Tottenham manager. I think Ryan Mason is gonna build something around Deli Alley. Wow. Um, not, not that that's something that I would endorse, as I've not been a huge Deli Ali fan for the past two or three years. But I, I reckon, heard it here first. He'll be starting tomorrow, and he'll be starting on Sunday. Wow. Okay. So he'll he'll be in there, and then it'll be Kane if he's fit, Sonny, and Bale. I reckon Bale will play. You can start Bale. Which I okay. don't. I. Yeah. Fuck it. Let's just go for it. <laughs> Let's just go all out for the win. It doesn't matter if we get spanked. Yeah. Well, it's an unbelievable prospect. It's been an unbelievable couple of days. 
I yeah, I mean the <laughs> to think that there's a chance that I'm going to be watching this match with my dad and Ryan Mason, Ledley King, and Michelle Vorm hoist the Carabao Cup aloft. Oh. Um, it's the stuff dreams are made of, and I haven't even dreamt Literally. it yet because it's only just been announced. But there you go. Exactly, I'm all um, and I've I have given up on watching Spurs this season, so I'm now watching the Cup final, which I'm very excited about because I wasn't mm. under under Mourinho. Uh, just finally, then what what next for Mourinho? Yeah. Doesn't doesn't take an, another team in England, I don't think. What what do you think's next for him? I wonder if it will be an international job, and I think eventually he's going to reach that stage of managing the likes of like Qatar. <laughs> Maybe he's going to lead Qatar to the 2022 World Cup. God. I would not put that past him <laughs> at all. Uh, maybe Definitely he'll, possible. Maybe he'll cover his own games for be, be in sports yeah. while simultaneously managing a club at the World Cup. I think it's entirely plausible. So, But I, I, I don't know, but I think he, his time in England is done, certainly for, for a few years. Um, and I don't think... I don't think he's getting near an ESL club anytime soon. Let's put it that way. Wicked. <laughs> uh, Thanks a lot, Rupert. Appreciate your time, mate. Thank you, mate. Take care.